Hey, come on in, Ken. Glad you could make it. Glad you could make it. Oh, yeah. I always enjoy hanging out on a Saturday night. Oh, yeah. uh, it's a shame we couldn't go with the wives to the uh, baby shower. Oh, <laughs> a crying shame. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, speaking of the wives not being here, uh, I'm getting hungry. Maybe we should order something in. Yeah, that's a great idea. I'm starved. I love Chinese food. Do you like Chinese? Actually, I hate Chinese food. <laughs> um, how about pizza? Pizza's great. I really like pizza. Uh, pizza, that's uh, the number one item on the chip menu, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Do uh, you like mushrooms and olives? I really hate mushrooms and olives. Um, how about onions and green pepper? That's what I really like, yeah. Oh, onions. Yeah, I, I can uh, taste and smell myself tomorrow right now. Um, um, a deep dish? Um, thin crust. Uh, Papa John's? Domino's. Uh, maybe we'll order the pizza a little later. Oh, I got an idea. Let's see what's on TV. Oh, tonight is the finals for the Olympic ice dancing. I love ice dancing. Let's watch that. Ice dancing. Hmm. Um, hey, you know what? Uh, in just a few minutes, there's going to be the grudge match for the World Wrestling Federation. Wrestling? Y you watch wrestling? It's real. It's real. <laughs> yeah, real stupid. <laughs> Okay, forget TV. How about we put up our feet and uh, listen to some nice music? How about that? that? That's something we can agree on. Yeah. Okay. Hey, hey, I just got some new CDs, opera CDs. They're great. Got The Marriage of Figaro. I've got The Barber of Seville. I've got The Magic Flute. Good stuff. Opera. You like opera? Well, yeah. Uh, I, I, lis I listen to opera, you know, when I'm not watching wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wanted to listen to something a little more classy, like, well, you know, the new Johnny Cash CD that's out. That's good stuff. Oh, Johnny Cash. Now, there's somebody whose career is on the rebound now that he's dead. <laughs> well, like Mozart and Rossini aren't dead. Uh, well, um, we, we can't seem to agree on much of anything right now. Um, well, I thought church was really good today. Yeah, I guess. You know... Surprisingly, my favorite part this morning was, was the offering call. I mean, when the they offering? Yeah, when, when they Gee. read the text about the, you know, preventing the, the pests and locusts from devouring our fields and crops, I, I like that. Hey, but what about the text that says that God sends the rain and the sun on the just and the unjust? I bet they don't pay their tithe. Uh, well, uh, but what about the text in Revelation that says we will be judged according to our deeds? Dude, you sound like you're trying to earn your salvation. What about what Paul says? And Martin Luther repeats it, the just shall live by faith. Well, I was just in expressing an you know, opinion. Uh, you know, in, in Psalms it says, he has made me bold and stout-hearted. Oh, yeah? <laughs> well, in Proverbs it says, I hate pride and arrogance. What about that? Why are you being so argumentative? I am not. Uh, Look, uh, can't we just get along? You know, in, in Titus it says we should avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and arguments about the law because they're pointless and unproductive. You know, maybe you're right. All right, 
Let's make a solemn vow never to argue about genealogies. We, we, we can agree on that. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Oh, look at the time. Oh, oh what you yeah. just left. Yeah. Must oh, be time the to go home. Wives are going to be coming in pretty soon from that baby shower. <clears throat> um, uh, I'm going to be turning in early tonight. Hey, um, there's some of us are going golfing tomorrow. Do you want to come We're at 10? You know, I, I'd really love to come golfing tomorrow, but, um, um, oh, I'm going to watch the big football game on TV. <laughs> oh, yeah, the big football game. Let's see, the college season is over. They had the Super Bowl and the pro. Yeah, that, that, that big game. Uh, yeah, okay, well, uh, enjoy the game. Uh, uh, yeah, don't don't, don't strain an eyeball. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right, we'll see you. <laughs> So bottle all this dissension you saw between the two gentlemen here. Bottle it all up and direct it towards one topic, would you? Worship. What happens here at 8.30 and 11 every Sabbath morning? Think of all this dissension in the topic of worship. When my worship and your worship are expressed experienced and expected in such diverse ways that we're no longer comfortable together, it's called a worship war. I want a full pipe organ. You, you, you want a full praise band. I would like to sing three hymns, all verses. When was the last time we sang every verse of a hymn? You, I know, you want the same seven songs 11 times I've heard all about it. I would like the ministers to enter with the chimes and kneel in reverence like it used to be. You want somebody with sandals and an open collar to say, hey, ready to praise God? I'd like a 40-minute Bible-based sermon, preferably no applause and no crying babies. You. You want to sing until it feels like enough. And whatever's worth saying can be compressed into 10 minutes, am I right? You, you're missing the rich traditions of the past. Me, I am resistant to the ever-changing present. When your worship and my worship seem to be so incompatible we can't be comfortable in the same place, it's called worship wars. And since the 1980s in our country, people have been selecting their churches, Christians have been selecting their churches based upon the style of worship of all things that would not make sense to the reformers of the 16th century. You select churches on doctrine. Bible teaching, worship wars. Romans chapter 14 addresses what happens to congregations who are being threatened, or who feel the tension of being divided when they can't agree upon things. We'll read together in Romans chapter 14 this morning. Now, let me just warn you, you'll read that the agenda is food and sacred days. And we won't be talking about food and sacred days. However, this is a principled conversation. As we read Romans chapter 14, we can pull principles out of that conversation. And we can insert any challenge a local congregation is facing and learn something there. 
This is a lot of scripture we're going to read this morning, and I'm warning you now because we don't usually read this much scripture during the sermon, so we'll have to be a little patient. Uh, Paul, however, is at his finest, I think, in some of these verses. We'll begin with verse 1. Remember, we're reading about food and days, but would you keep the worship wars in your head as we read together? Verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat everything, and another person whose faith is weak, he eats only vegetables. The person who eats everything must not look down on the one who does not, and the one who does not must not condemn the person who does, for God has accepted him or her. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one man considers one day more sacred than the other. Another man considers every day alike. Each should be fully convinced in his mind. He who regards the day as special does so to the Lord. The one who eats meat, he eats it to the Lord and gives thanks to God. And the one who abstains, he does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to themselves alone, and none of us dies to self alone. We live if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Verse 9, for this reason Christ died and returned to life so that, we might be, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother and sister? Why do you look down on your brother and sister? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written... As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. Paul is as clear as he can be. Very little commentary for Pauline material. Keep reading with me. Verse 13, we'll read just a few more verses. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your own mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in front of your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by humans. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. Blessed is the person who does not condemn himself or herself by what he or she approves, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin." Well, it is a wonderful passage for Sabbath-keeping vegetarian Adventist Christians. <laughs> and if you're visiting today, we are several weeks into our coronary health improvement program where we have been learning it absolutely does matter what we eat. 
great conversation in Romans chapter 14. It's fuel for some combustible, combustible conversation. One of my most memorable was from a 16-year-old boy, a young man studying the Bible with me a few years ago. His mother wanted him to give up his meat-eating ways he'd acquired from his father. And he came to me and asked for a passage. But before I even could get there, he stumbled onto Romans chapter 14, and he was delighted. He went home and said, I hit the jackpot. Mom, you eat your alfalfa. I eat my Big Macs. Everybody's fine. Is that really what Romans 14 is saying? We don't know exactly what Paul had in mind. We will never know, and the scholars are divided on this topic, and the evidence is lined up on both sides of the conversation. Did he know the issues the Roman Christians were struggling with? Or did he, rather, from Corinth, where he's writing this letter, make some assumptions, if this is what's happening in Corinth, probably such and such is happening in Rome. We will never know the answer to that. What we can know is that there's a complex environment, a metropolitan mixture of people and customs. Now they are trying to integrate what they have been with this new thing called the Christ way or the Christ cult. And everyone integrating everything together. And so when you read unclean and clean food, it probably has very little to do with healthy living. When we read unclean and clean food, it probably doesn't even specifically mean the strict Jewish dietary codes. It might mean, however, people making judgments. That is, unclean food is eaten by unclean Gentiles. And because those Gentiles are filthy, I will not only abstain from meat... I might take the higher spiritual path and eat only vegetables. Harsh judgments leading to harsh conclusions. That's probably what's behind Romans chapter 14. Whether Paul knows exactly or not what is happening there, I'm going to pull out five principles you could extract more, but here are five that I think we can transport into any challenge. The first one I see... Paul affirms there are different positions. He, he has the categories, the weak and the strong. I'm not sure this was the smart thing to do if we're worried about dissensions to immediately label categories, but he did. And then he firmly planted himself among the strong. It is not new language for Romans chapter 14. Way back in chapter 4, Abraham has been listed as the strong, as one who has no doubts. So Paul aligns himself with Abraham, the weak and the strong. And if you're like me and you grow weary of those categories, liberal and conservative, you can thank the Apostle Paul for the precedence he's setting here. But what's more interesting than the categories is the idea that he never encourages the weak to become strong, or does he say to the strong, you need to become like the weak? He never tells the two to become the other or to merge into one uniform expression of their new Christian faith. Isn't that interesting? Now Paul, also a new member of this Christ cult, we know he never renounces Judaism. He dies a Jew. And we learn from his first principle here, it is possible 
to coexist and to flourish without forcing uniformity of expression. So, first principle, there are differing opinions, different camps. The second principle, he seems to affirm them both. Do you notice that? It isn't as though the weak and the strong exist, and these are the ones making the careful decisions, and they're making the less careful decisions, and they're making their decisions with God in mind, and these are making decisions with self in mind, and the implication of all that, these are more holy, these are less holy, or the other way around. Paul seems to affirm both categories are doing whatever they're doing unto the Lord. Did you see that expression in there several times? You're eating vegetables. You're eating them unto the Lord. You're eating meat. You eat it unto the Lord. You worship on this day. You do it unto the Lord. He assumes the best about the other person. Wow. He assumes that they are intelligent and committed and faithful to God. He never challenges that. And realizes that even intelligent, committed, faithful people will live with some very real differences. So he sees groups, and he affirms these two different viewpoints and various ones in between. We shouldn't be so naive as to think these are two clear-cut categories. It is not so. A third principle, he challenges them, look, if you want something to do, do the work internally. Convince yourself in your own mind, didn't he say? Study and work it out and rethink it for yourself, and when you know you've got it right, keep it to yourself. Verse 22, keep it to yourself or tell it to God. Is he crazy? Because when I know I've got it right and I've got it all worked out, you need to know. If I'm still thinking in categories of right and wrong, I haven't figured it out yet. Paul says, you want some work to do? Work it out in your own mind. And when you're convinced, keep it to yourself. The fourth principle. Remember who the judge is, Paul says. Do you know there in verse 11, who does it say we'll be sitting and who will we confess to? Verse 11, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess. Who? Dr. Bob? Well, every... No, Dr. Bob, that wasn't the right answer. (laughs) Will every tongue confess Mike Philman? Will every tongue confess Chris Oberg? No. Every tongue confesses God. There is one judge. There is one person who judges all of this. Fourth principle, the fifth. Paul says, accept one another. The, verse, the chapter began that way, 14 verse 1. We read accept, and I think we hear tolerate, allow, be decent, as I tell my daughters every day. Let them sit in the same sanctuary with you. Be be under one roof. You, You could even sit as close as these guys were up here. Allow. Accept. And that is not the meaning of the word accept. If you move to chapter 15 and verse 7, look at how the word accept is used when it is applied to God accepting you and I. 
15 verse 7 says, Accept one another then just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accepting means doing more for one another as Christ has done to us. And if you've been with us through the whole sermon series, you realize it takes 11 chapters for Paul to convince the people God accepts you. God has mercy for you. God loves you and you and you, period. 11 chapters it took to say that. And now Paul is saying accepted, welcomed people turn into accepting, welcoming people. So when we read the word accept, we should think rather take into yourself in friendship, hold close or even take into your own heart one another. For that's what the word means, accept one another. Grant access to your heart. It's the fifth principle. Different experiences, they're both affirmed, they're both valid. Do your work internally, let God be the judge. Take one another into your own heart. Now I come back to my worship wars conversation and I ask, when I think about the collisions that take place in worship and sometimes the casualties, what happens if I apply these principles? We'll only apply one or two, but just think of this one. One or two is quite enough. Different worship experiences are valid. What you experience is valid. What I experience is valid. What we experience in North America, which is so different than many other countries, go around the world where people sing with different instruments or voices alone, where they sing to different rhythms and with colors and with dancing and with all these layers and textures to their worship experience. Paul says different experiences are valid. It's different in the Anglo church than if we were to go to our sister church in Riverside today, the Kansas Avenue church. My, what our worship experiences look different, but both valid. It looks different as we move through time and each new generation internalizes this dynamic and experiences it. So it is our worship today looks different than my grandparents and their grandparents. And I've never been quite as aware of that as this week listening to the Olympics I've been trying to catch on to this snowboarding sport. Now, it started a couple of weeks ago with the snowboarding World Cup, the World Cup event, right? And I'm in the kitchen listening to them talk about these gentlemen and ladies going through the half pipe. And here's what the commentator said. These riders are throwing down combos like crazy. Watch him now, a 1080 comboed up into a sweet sweat 720. A 900 backsides into a 720. Oh, he's pretty stoked right now. If he can combust into the pipe at just the right time, that's what everybody wants to see. Oh, he delivers four huge airs way above the fans' heads. And a backside rodeo flip. Look at him go as big as you can go. What is this language? I felt old this week then as the Olympics premiered with not just snowboarding, but this snowboarding cross event, which has been likened to NASCAR on ice. Did you hear that this week? But listen to the intentionality of the, Olympic, the International Olympic Committee and their statement. 
This is a move on the part of the IOC adding a sport that is designed to capture the attention of the youth. The rest of us might not get it, but a whole new generation now engages in an event that in the modern era is over 100 years old. So as time advances, we should expect changes. When I was a little girl, a very little girl, the Wedgwood Trio started. In the Adventist church, the Wedgwood Trio was a big ripple. These guys with guitars and a bass who had a, a folk bluegrass sound, and they went on the camp meeting circuit, and they could only get into the youth tent. They're banned from the adult, adult divisions. And they will tell you today, some of these gentlemen, my friends, and our colleague down the street at the Banning Church, today they can only get into the adult tent. They're banned from the youth. Because time moves on, and this is what happens when time advances. I invite you to come specifically next week as our youngest pastor, Isaac, has a dialogue with our older pastor, Larry, and we listen to what happens between the generations as we figure out if we can still live together. Each experience is valid. If you were here during the Christmas concert at all, when the brass group came, the King's Brass, it was an, an interesting to watch because we knew at one point in the program that guys were going to slip off the stage and they were going to enter from the back, and they were going to belt out a song that might make a few people uncomfortable. You're going to watch a video clip here. Their version of a New Orleans-style song in the sanctuary. <laughs> They get halfway down the aisle, and some of you were here, they turned into the center and went, oh, yeah. <laughs> and some saints popped out of their pews. <laughs> For some people, however, that music represented the joy and the smile and the pleasure and the fun of being in God's presence. And it was an equally valid experience as the most sacred, oh, holy night that was done here in the very same sanctuary. Do you think every song in heaven will be in 4-4 time? She refrains. Each experience is valid is what we learn. Each experience is valid because what we think is happening is people are connecting with God in their own unique ways. 
And that is actually what we're looking for. So when you come to the Calamesa Church, we, we do what we call this blended worship style here. The best of the old with the best of the new. And, and we combine it together, hoping that in this broad spectrum of things, you'll find something that you connect with and that you'll worship God. Someone has glibly said, blended worship, it's an equal opportunity offender. No one gets what they want. If you really wanted live festive music, you're not going to get it. If you really wanted it very traditional and sacred, you're not going to get it. Well, guess what? I've been coming here a whole year, and my favorite hymn hasn't been sung yet. All right? And my second favorite hymn, I want to hear it sung in a Negro spiritual fashion. And I'm not sure that's ever going to happen. And the third thing I want, I never hear my favorite preacher every week. If you think you have it bad. <laughs> Since I was a little girl, I have loved Billy Graham. I'm not sure I'll ever get to hear him on a Sabbath morning. But here's the point. As your pastor and representing the rest of the staff, I'm mean, just going to tell you straight we're not hoping to specialize in a worship style here. We're hoping to create an environment where you'll meet your creator, where you'll get a vision of God this week that will transform you and change you, where you'll leave different people. That's what we hope happens in the sanctuary. And that's why we say, yes, all these experiences are valid. The second principle we can apply, we can affirm and assume the best of one another, like Paul did. I assume from your position you're doing it unto the Lord. You can assume from where I stand I'm also doing it unto the Lord. We're intelligent, committed, faithful people to the same one God. I'm going to assume the best about you. You can assume the best about me when it comes to our worship conversations. And we realize when we start talking this way, there's no power in the sanctuary that belongs with you, with me, seated in a pew, behind a pulpit, on the sidewalk, in a conversation. All the power is on a throne in heaven. Is that right? And that's the power we worship in front of. And you begin to think about it this way and internalize it you realize how silly worship wars are. Especially on a week like this, this afternoon, the Pogue family, I know you're here this morning, some of you have traveled from a distance, and, and your father, Dr. Pogue, shares some characteristics with the gentleman that we buried yesterday. Dr. Pogue, a visionary and a master healer for the healthcare system, the Adventist system in Guyana. Yesterday, when we buried Kenny Roberts, as you've heard it spoken about today, not only the testimonies at the funeral, but all week long, I've listened to people talk about this gentleman, and I've just, I've sat with those testimonies and internalized, what was it that made a man walk away from other business opportunities, leave his family at home more nights than he should have? bring small children to the church with him so he could at least be with them, let them all run the pitch of our roof without their mama seeing what he was doing. What would invade a man's mind? What would persuade him to work when there was no more money for the building program? What would make him 
take fifteen or $20,000 of his own money and dump it into the project? What would make him go down to the academy and say, I'm going to underbid everybody else because that's how bad I want to build these buildings? And then say to his whole crew, you'll work for less, won't you, because that's what I'm going to do. Wow, you, you listen to these testimonies this week, and I realize I stand in line with that rich tradition. Wow. He just wanted to build a sanctuary. Do you think he imagined the baptisms and the weddings and the cup and the wine, the spoken word, the organ that would be installed one day, the grand piano, how the stage would be filled with concerts, how... Yes, even a drum set would one day sit on the stage. I wonder, as he built this roof and put things together, did he ever visualize all all those things such as sacrificial soul? And not only do I just, I sense this rich tradition as I stand in line with that generation, and I'm, I'm inspired, and I wonder, when it's my generation's turn, will we step up to the plate and do the same thing? I also see how insignificant so much of this is. He just wanted to build a sanctuary so the people of God would have a place to worship. Worship wars makes no sense to Kenny and Stella Roberts. And I see Romans 15, verse 7, once again, welcome one another as God has welcomed you through Christ. If you want to argue about something, if you want to cogitate and discuss and have a tug-of-war, fight over how much you should love each other. How about that? And if you think I've made it up, go back to Romans chapter 13. Paul says, if you want to have a debt, have a debt of love. Have a debt of love. Fight about love. I ask myself when I think about these principles, when I watch the life of the community here, when I see this sanctuary Kenny Roberts built, wow, when I get to the end, when I stand in eternity, and when I look back, will this matter? Will it matter whether it was brass or an open collar? Will it matter whether it was solo voices highly trained, or the sweetest, purest children's voice? Will any of that really matter when I stand in eternity and looked back, or will all that will matter will be, I'm in the presence of God, and this is what I've been preparing for all my life? It is a great question for a faith community to ask itself. When you stand at the end and look back, what will matter? I have told you before that all the church music I've learned and my respect for good church music, all of that came from my grandmother. My grandmother was the head organist, I think the only organist, at the Kelso Washington Church. I don't think she allowed anyone else on the organ bench. That'd be grandma, huh, Bonnie? 
Everything I know about church music, I learned from my grandmother, including the way it should be played properly. There is a way to do all of this music. And when we would sit in her home on Sabbath afternoons, sometimes we would make the drive there, an organ and a piano sitting in the same living room, she would have the hymnal open to her very favorite song, and I was to sit down and play with her. And I was to play just as she was playing. I think body gestures, everything is meant to go in here. I don't even know where that kind of piano playing comes from. It's a game my cousins and I played, who, who can play like Grandma Nelson the best? And I win. And you see, I need to listen to Paul more because I'm still thinking right and wrong categories, right? So I would play the piano like Grandma Nelson and she would smile. Then as I became a teenager in the 70s, that is when the praise and worship movement took off. Some of you remember that in our country in particular. And the Vineyard Fellowship began with all of its project. And for the first time, I realized, shall we gather at the river can be played another way. Well, when I played that for my grandmother... You know the metronome that sits by the piano? <laughs> well, she would just adjust it a little faster and she'd look at me and say, one, two, three. And off we'd go the right way. And we never agreed on that song. In fact, I don't think we ever agreed on any music. She went to her grave knowing that is the proper way to play church music. And what never made sense to me was it's not even enough that I'm playing the same song. It's not even enough I'm playing out of her hymnal. Wow. So let me ask you, when you get to the end and you're standing in eternity and you're looking back, will it matter? Doesn't it seem silly? Romans chapter 15, Paul says, Welcome one another. Take one another into your hearts. Internalize one another as Christ has done for you. May this be the only thing we stand for in this sanctuary. Amen. We invite you to stand as we sing together, Shall We Gather at the River? Shall we sing the first and the last stanza as Mike plays it? Just sing it out. Yes, we'll gather at the river. Shall we gather at the river where bright angels 
state have trod with its crystal tide forever flowing by the throne of God. Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river, gather with the saints at the river that flows by the throne of God. Soon, soon we'll reach the shining river. Soon our pilgrimage will cease. Soon our happy hearts will quiver with the melody of The beautiful, the beautiful river, gather with the saints at the river that flows by. So may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>